Well, come on in, grab a seat. We'll get started. Uh, I, um, I'm covering tonight uh, the First Amendment. So how many amendments are there? 27, yes, thank you. We're learning, aren't we? All right, 27 amendments. So in the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, and we've gone over the Declaration of Independence, and then we go into the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, and we, we see the separation of powers, we see the preamble of who the sovereign is, we the people, and then we go through the seven articles of the Constitution, starting with the legislative branch, and then breaking it down, dividing the powers of the government so that it's not in the hands of one, but uh, the sovereign, it's the only government on the face of the earth where the sovereign isn't directly involved in, uh, in the government. Um, and, and as we, we've also studied, they say the most dangerous branch is the legislative branch because it has direct connection with the sovereign, which is the people. And so we've gone through this idea that we hold these truths to be self-evident, and we'll see this in a moment, that all men are created equal. So with this equality, uh, equality in, in dignity, not in capacity, that if I'm going to do something to you, I can only do it with your permission. So we create on this earth a representative form of government, when that's established, we then have the Constitutional Convention, which gives us the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution. And then the very first amendment that they put together is what we're going to take a look at, because it's this idea of the freedom of speech. And it's also the freedom of press, freedom of religion, the freedom to peaceably uh, assemble for a right of redress of grievances against the government. Now, before we begin, why do you think that they gave us the First Amendment? Why was this the, the preeminent amendment and established? And actually, uh, when we look at Jefferson and we see it was already established in the Massachusetts Constitution, the Virginia Constitution, uh, why do you think it was so important for them to put this very First Amendment right after that they had done the separation of powers, they had a checks and balance system, they wanted to create a government that would debate truth, uh, come to a consensus that you could argue on both sides of the aisle. Why did they give us the First Amendment and feel as though this was of vital importance to protect? Any guesses on that? Anyone want to throw out their ideas? What's that? They thought uh, the, the comment was that, that possibly the government wouldn't let them if that right wasn't enumerated. Anyone else? Yes? Encourage participation and discourage suppression. Is that what you said? Yeah, that's good. Yes? Okay, so that, that's a good one. It, it, it comes from the history. So what did we have in Europe that then occurred when we had the Mayflower Compact, and then we went through this whole idea of examining a government, having a constitutional republic, uh, unlike anything the, the, the world had ever seen. What was the previous government, the dominating government on the face of the earth prior to a constitutional republic? Monarchy, or as we've studied, an oligarchy where a few rule the many, correct? Now, in a monarchy or an oligarchy, who gives you your rights? The king does. In a constitutional republic, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. So who gives the rights according to our Declaration of Independence, which is our mission statement, and then our bylaws is the U.S. Constitution? Who gives us our rights? Our creator. And, and those rights are for the select few that are in favor of the king, or are they uh, available to all mankind? Remember, we studied that when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for a people. So it's at any time in history for any people. The, the Declaration of Independence wasn't written just for America. It was written for the freedom of all mankind. That's why many believe it to be a very sacred text. So we see this idea of freedom, and we, we see this, this concept of previously you had monarchies, right? And so what was happening when we had the Protestant Reformation? What was happening in Europe uh, prior to, well, with the Protestant Reformation, what was happening in Europe? Um, what kind of war was going on? Religious wars? French, French Revolution came after the Revolutionary War. We, we had religious wars, right? Protestants against Catholics, anyone? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> so we had religious wars, and, and finally they had this idea that they could create peace, that the sovereign of that location would declare what religion his people would be. And so the pilgrims were separatists, and they were looking for freedom of religion. They came over, and remember we had the Geneva Bible? Remember we studied that? 
And what was significant about the Geneva Bible is it was the same text as every other Bible, except for it had margins. And in the margins, it had all kinds of commentary on civil government. And you can go into the rotunda at the Capitol, and you'll see the pilgrims arriving. And there with William Bradford, they have the, the Geneva Bible open. And this was this experiment in this idea of civil government, looking at the scriptures as we've covered this in the past. So they have this concept of religious freedom, and if rights don't come from man and they come from God, what is necessary to understand as a people? John Adams said a republic can only be governed by a what? A moral people. So you need to understand what right and wrong is. You have to understand this. Now, are we going to be Catholic or are we going to be Protestant? Anyone ever heard of Maryland? <laughs> yeah, good. You've heard of Maryland. What, what, what do you think the founders of Maryland thought of for religion? Catholicism, right. Maryland. Rhode Island had a, a whole different concept. Pennsylvania had a different concept. Virginia had a concept. You look at the Carolinas, this idea of Scottish Covenanters, Presbyterianism. So you, you've got different religions. And one of the coolest things I've ever seen is when they ask uh, George Washington to dedicate the very first synagogue uh, on, on U.S. soil, and you have to read that speech that he wrote. And he said, if you're going to be good citizens, we're going to protect, we're here to commit to protect your religious freedom, but you have an obligation to the state to be good citizens. Now, with this idea of freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and the freedom to peaceably assemble for right of redress of grievances against the government. Let's take a look at this tonight because this is, well, I want to add one more thing. I'm kind of looking at this as a community legacy series. And um, I don't know how you feel about this, but one of the things that I've experienced this past week is the press. Is anyone? How many of you participate in Nextdoor? It's an app. Okay, we've got a few hardcore crazy folks. And, and is that real civil? What? Okay, you live in a good neighborhood. Anyone else? Can it be uncivil at times? Can they say things that aren't true? When they start to advertise their products, then some of us will jump in and say, oh, can we advertise now? Anything political is supposed to stay off of it, but have you noticed how that gets kind of skewed a little bit? Okay, and in the press, you, you get interviewed, and then you give a statement, and then it comes into the press different than what you said. Anyone ever had that happen to them? A few folks, I have. And, and, and then letters to the editor. Has anyone ever received a letter to the editor pertaining to yourself in any way, shape, or form, and they say things about you? Now, do you get to do libel? Do you get to sue them for, you know, attack a character or something that's untrue? We really hold to this idea of the freedom of the press. We also hold to this idea of freedom of religion. But look at this. This is our First Amendment ratified December 15, 1791. I don't know what happened there. There we go. Congress shall make no law. What do you think no law means? Pretty simple. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So what does that mean? There isn't going to be one religion in the United States. We're not all going to be Episcopalians. We're not all going to be Presbyterians. We're not all going to be Methodists. We're not all going to be Catholic. We're not all going to be Calvary Chapel. You have the freedom of religion. So the government will make no law respecting a specific religion or prohibiting, or prohibiting. What does prohibiting mean? Getting in the way of, stopping, yes? Or prohibiting the what? Free. What does free mean? Without restraint, without fetters, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of what? The, the folks that put our government together actually said the people, we the people, the sovereign have a right to respond when they're what? They're grieved, they're upset. What power, what authority would ever allow themselves to be questioned? Do you understand how amazing this is? I gotta tell you, I, I don't like the press sometimes. Sometimes I do, most of the time I don't. But guess what I am? I'm an elected official, yes? 
And so this is the opportunity that our founder said, you have the ability to congregate and to have your voice heard for a, a right of redress of grievances to throw the bums out. Now, what does somebody who doesn't want to lose power want to do? Restrain that and silence detractors. And what is the purpose of the wheels of government with a lower house and an upper house and a bicameral, bicameral legislature where you have opposing views contending? What, what happens in that? Discussion. Discussion. Right? I mean, we've had a couple of cool discussions here. I said, how many people want the entire Grand Canyon filled with sewage? And how many people want thalidomide babies? We went through that, didn't we? How many of you are strict constitutionalists? How many of you think the EPA? And we saw a different set of hands, didn't we? And what are you going to have? You're going to have a conversation, aren't you? So this, this freedom of religion and this freedom of speech and the freedom of the press and the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for right of redress of grievances... So they established this First Amendment to protect us from our representatives. Why in the world would we need protection from our representatives? Anybody? They're people. What do people love? Power. And this, this concept that I want you to serve me, and so when I get into a position where I have the guns and I have the money and I have the power, you are now working for me, and we go right back to an oligarchy as opposed to a constitutional republic. And what happens is the people, and so what are vital in a society to, to maintain freedom? What are, what's vital according to the First Amendment that our founders thought absolutely vital to protect the freedom from these folks that would want to cause us to be their servants? The voice. The pulpits. Why the pulpits? Why the pulpits? What's unique about this government? Where do our rights come from? Our creator. Now, if we can remove this concept of a creator, then who gives you your rights? Huh? The government does. There's no God. You don't have rights. You have whatever rights I tell you. Everyone's equal, but some are more equal than others. George Orwell, yes. So the pulpits have to remain free. And what happens if the pulpits don't engage in the conversation? Just take a look at the sermons of of the pastors on the eastern seaboard in the entire buildup to the writing of not only the Declaration of Independence, but the U.S. Constitution. And guess what they talked about? Guess what their sermon titles were? Government. Well, wait a minute. What about a separation of church and state? Where is the separation of church and state? Could you please cite for me anything in the founding documents or the first 10 years of the congressional record that speaks of anything of a separation of church and state? This one? So the establishment of a, of a religion, but not the freedom of religion, right? Yes? So do I have the right to practice my religion? Well, wait a minute. What if I want to apply, uh, what if I want to impose Sharia law and demand you, all the women have to wear burqas? What's, what's happening now? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being liberty and the pursuit of happiness or virtue. Now, what if I impose on you, what if my religion imposes on you a restriction of your freedoms that are endowed by your Creator, inalienable? <laughs> Can't put a lien on them. What if my religion imposes that on you? What happens? If it's a violation, we hold these truths to be self-evident. This is a law of nature and nature's God. It doesn't matter if you're a Catholic or a Protestant or a Jew. If you live within the confines of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, inalienable rights, the laws of nature, nature's God, everything works smoothly. But once you create an institution that will suppress the freedom of another human being, you're in trouble because you're suppressing these inalienable rights endowed by our creator, right? 
Does everyone get that? Okay. We're going to do a tough one here. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with, uh, with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Now, let me ask you this. And, and we, this is going to the Supreme Court. You won't bake a cake for my wedding. And the proprietor says it's a violation of what I hold to be sacred. Now, are we suppressing someone's right? Or are they suppressing someone's right? Where does the freedom of religion come? Struggling with this, anybody? Can you get, a, can you get someone to bake you a cake somewhere else? Will you bake anything for them at any time, but this one aspect of your faith prohibits you from doing that? But I will... Find someone to do it for you. I just can't do it. Does that sound reasonable? Now, you saw this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Do you know what the original writing was and why Thomas Jefferson put the pursuit of happiness? You know what it used to be? And and you're going to find it in the Massachusetts Constitution, the Virginia Constitution. It was life, liberty, and property. What is property? Property is that which you've earned by the sweat of your brow, that gives you the ability to have and exercise this authority, right? Now, what if someone can infringe on your property, your business? Are you, anyone tracking me on this? All right, now, how far does freedom of speech go? Well, come on, I mean... Michael, you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. Does that hurt your feelings? Not in this context. You know. <laughs> but are you tracking me? Yeah, of course. Do I have the freedom to say that? Yeah. Now, his feelings are hurt, and the facts are not true. That's libel. But in the freedom of the press, there's really hard to get a libel suit against the press, yes? How about this? If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. What if it hurts their feelings? The most important aspect of freedom of speech is freedom to learn. All education is continuous dialogue, questions and answers that pursue every problem on the horizon. That is the essence of academic freedom. Where are we lacking academic freedom today? Universities, I want you to watch something. Take a look at this. Are you, are you guys ready to show the video? We're going to show a couple, just two videos, but I want you to see this. Freedom of speech, the ability to express yourself. It's a cherished idea, as well it should be. Most of us who live in liberal Western democracies think of it as a basic human right. People have fought and died for it. But now we may be in danger of losing it. The threat is not coming from without, from external enemies, but from within. A generation is being raised not to believe in freedom of speech, but rather that they should have freedom from speech from speech they dislike. This is a threat to both pluralism and democracy itself. We see this in Europe, where sensitivity-based censorship attempts to ban anything deemed hateful or even just hurtful, and to ban criticism of religion, especially Islam. But the United States, despite its strong constitutional protections in the Bill of Rights, is far from immune from the rising trend of suppression of speech, or what is sometimes called political correctness. This is especially true at America's colleges and universities, the place where our future leaders are educated and where you'd expect speech to be the most free. Highly restrictive speech codes are now the norm on campus, not the exception. According to a study by my organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, 
54% of public universities and 59% of private universities impose politically correct speech codes on their students. And thanks to recent Department of Education guidelines, 100% of colleges may adopt speech codes in the coming years. How bad is it? At a public campus in California on Constitution Day in 2013, a student who also happens to be a decorated military veteran was told he could not hand out copies of the Constitution to his fellow students. The objection from the university was not ideological. It was out-of-control bureaucracy imposing limits on speech. That same day, another college student in that same state was told he could not protest NSA surveillance outside of a tiny free speech zone, an area that comprised only 1.37% of the campus. Months later, college students in Hawaii were told both they could not hand out the Constitution to their fellow students and that they could not protest NSA policies outside the school's free speech zone. Fire took these colleges to court, but the fact that we had to shows you how bad it has become. Recently, students and sympathetic faculty have joined forces to exclude campus speakers whose opinions they dislike. At FIRE, we call this disinvitation season, although the season lasts all year round. Since 2009, there has been a major uptick in the push by students and faculty to get speakers they dislike disinvited. These speakers have included former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, the Somali-born feminist and critic of Islam, Ayan Hirsi Ali, and the director of the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde. And that's only the obvious part of the disinvitation problem. Few conservative speakers are invited to speak at colleges lest they have to be disinvited later. The newest threat to speech comes from so-called trigger warnings, alerts that warn students that they are about to read or hear something that triggers a negative emotional response. A 2014 New York Times article cited the example of a Rutgers student requesting trigger warnings for the classic American novel The Great Gatsby because it, quote, possesses a variety of scenes that reference abusive misogynistic violence, unquote. Recently, Oberlin College attempted to institute a policy that heavily encouraged the faculty to avoid difficult topics and to employ trigger warnings as a means of making classrooms safer. Safety has been watered down to essentially mean the right to always feel comfortable. New demands for trigger warnings are popping up on campuses across the country. Add in popular academic theories that encourage students to scrutinize speech for microaggressions, any statement that might be construed as racially insensitive, classist, sexist, or otherwise un-PC, and it's clear that campuses are teaching students to police what they say. This is precisely the opposite of what is needed. Our society needs candor, and it needs freedom of speech, not freedom from speech. Intellectual comfort is not a right, nor should it ever be. Not if we want freedom of speech, let's just call it freedom, to survive. I'm Greg Lukianoff president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education That's good. for Prager University. To subscribe to our YouTube channel. I wanted to avoid that part. <laughs> so freedom of speech or freedom from speech? And, and what does this speech allow? To dialogue, to communicate? Not always do we dialogue, sometimes we shout at each other. But if we can shout someone down from having the ability to speak, what happens? Only one idea. Is that civil? Is that how it was intended to be? No. This freedom of speech is the ability to communicate and to come to an understanding, which is this idea of logos, this idea of, of coming to an understanding of truth. And you have to debate these ideas. But what if you don't want opposition to your ideas and you want to implement what it is you want to implement then the greatest thing that you can do is to suppress the voice of any opposition. And so what's happening on our college campuses, which should be a place where there should be this freedom of speech and this freedom of intellectual idea and this ability to test and challenge and, and study, now it's being suppressed. And there are certain things you can't say. 
Why? Why can't you say them? Because someone is offended. Now, what does that mean? I was offended this week. But I think the press, there needs to be, why are we shutting down newspapers? You used to get an afternoon newspaper and a morning newspaper. And these machines are shutting down. And now they want to censor the internet and certain ideas. What's happening in Germany right now? Has anyone followed the news? Can anyone share with me what's happening in Germany? Can't say Muslim. They're shutting down certain aspects. Certain ideologies can't be espoused, can't be spoken of. Is that what we're about in this country? And, and as you go through this, I want you to take a look. And this one is very far-fetched, but it's had 14 million hits on the Internet. It started in Australia, and it's a fascinating video. It was done by some students. And uh, it is, it's, it's out there. It's hyperbole. But it's very funny, and it's also kind of sad. And I showed this to four separate groups of millennials and, and two groups of high school students, and they all said, that's my life. Watch this video, and then we'll get back to the text. They spelled that wrong. (laughs) By the way, none of the students in this are Christian or religiously minded. I just want you to know that. Let's turn it up. I just asked a question. We don't ask questions. Questions are offensive. Yeah. Now, students, I trust you've all completed your research assignments. And remember, the person with the highest mark will be flying to New York to present their paper at the World Mathematics Summit. Well done, Penelope. Six out of ten. You too, Simon. Six out of ten. staring at her for 10 seconds. What? It's a form of harassment to stare at a woman for more than 15 seconds straight. And when I use the term straight, I don't mean to offend any persons of a non-traditional sexual preference. And when I use the term non-traditional, I don't mean to offend any persons who oppose historically normalised... Okay, okay, I get it. Unfortunately, Sunshine, your research assignment is only worth a 1 out of 10. Fourier transform and mathematical methods in electronics to analyze the electrodiagrams of at-risk patients and calculate their risk of experiencing a heart attack. I mean, it's a new method, but it could potentially save thousands of lives. Seven. You barely even read it. You used red pen. What? Red is considered offensive in many religions. Why would you belittle everything down to a singular colour? Well, humanity is a rainbow of beauty and spirituality. Yeah. Okay, fine. Seven out of ten, but that still means I get to go to the summit, right? The marking process isn't over yet. Now, because we live in a society based on equality, the total amount of marks are to be divided equally among our students. You've got to be kidding me. Well done, students. We're all equal. 
We're all Africans. But then who gets to go to the summit? Oh, we haven't added our privilege points yet. Don't you know anything? That is correct. Now, Penelope, you are female, so that's plus one privilege point. However, you are white, so that's minus one. I'm also bisexual. Plus one. That leaves you with a total score of six out of ten. Simon, unfortunately, you're straight, white, and male. And cisgendered. Yes, so that's minus four privilege points, which leaves you with a total score of one. Totally fair. Now you. You're male, and I don't like you. So that's minus two privilege points. But you are brown and sexually ambiguous. So that's plus two. That leaves you with a total score of five Wait, why am I sexually ambiguous? And finally, Sunshine. Um, I'm gay, I'm trans, I'm Asian, <laughs> I'm overweight, I'm lower class, I'm unintelligent, unattractive, I've got hairs on my nipples, and I also got body odour, and I can't really run properly or tie my shoelaces by myself. I once watched a pigeon die. Wonderful Sunshine. That's... 13 privilege points. That leaves you with a total score of 18 out of 10. Well done, Sunshine. You're going to New York. Hooray, Sunshine! We knew you could do it! Let me see this. They've just written equality and drawn love hearts on a piece of paper. He expressed himself and it's beautiful. He didn't even spell equality correctly. We don't discriminate. This has nothing to do with mathematics. Do you think you're so great with your maths and your science and your facts? What about feelings, huh? Yeah. Feelings are more important than facts. Yeah! This is wrong. You're all crazy. not to be offended. And that's more important. And if you don't stop verbally assaulting us, we will be forced to attack you in self-defense. Can't do that. Actually, we have every right to do so. And it's illegal for you to fight back. Yeah! This is insane. Prepare to die a noble social justice warrior. Death! <laughs> Kind of heavy. When I showed it to millennials or I showed it to high school students, they get it. For us, we look at them and go, that's just crazy. But do you understand that this is the idea that when it's the absence of free speech, the absence of the ability to talk about faith, the absence of the press, the absence to peaceably assemble for right of redress of grievances, and how, we're, how, do, you, how do you stop that? How do you suppress that right? You silence the pulpits. You silence the press. You own the press. You limit the location of where you can speak freely on a campus. You say you don't have the right to say that because it offends me. They're facts. They don't care about your feelings, right? Now, the room is deadly silent because it's frightening, isn't it? Because a lot of you know that if you say something in a place you shouldn't, you're in trouble. Hello? How did that happen? Huh? The church's fault. You blaming me? You're the one sitting. I'm standing. I did work today. I'm sorry, what'd you say over here? You You got afraid. Intimidation. And what does that do? It silences the ability to communicate. And how do you alienate one another? 
by names. Marginalize. Yes? Now, that's hyperbole. And is the church... Let, let me finish. Is the church responsible for any of that? You bet. What have we done? Mm, silence, but what else? Have we marginalized anybody? Huh? Yeah. Watered it down, but we've also marginalized it. We've, we've, have we ostracized certain groups of people? Hello? Yeah. Don't you think it's from the parents? Parents choose to hearing it from the pulpit. Parents aren't receiving it. They all they hear they just hear these volunteers. I know what's going on. Yeah. But you pay to send them to that school. <laughs> There's some Christian schools I wouldn't send my kids to, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. Let me read to you um, a speech that was given after World War II by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He said, This republic had its beginnings and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable political rights. Pay attention to that. Among them, the right of free speech, free press, free worship, trial by jury, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizure. They were our rights to life and liberty. What's he excluding? And property. As our nation has grown in size and stature, however, as our industrial economy expanded, these political rights proved inadequate to assure us equality in the pursuit of happiness. We have come to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitous men are not free men. People who are hungry and out of a job are the stuff of which dictatorships are made. In our day, these economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. We have accepted, so to speak, a second Bill of Rights under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station, race, or creed. Among these are, these are the new secondary Bill of Rights that are given by Roosevelt, the right to a useful remunerative job in the industries or shops or farms or mines of the nation, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in, in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home. The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. The right to a good education. All of these rights spell security, and after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for our citizens, for unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. So, we now have, according to President Roosevelt, the right to adequate protection from economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, the right to good education, the right to adequate medical care, the right to every family, to a decent home, the right of every businessman. What if I don't want to work? Huh? What if I don't want to work? How do those rights, where, where do I get these things? Where does the government get it from? If the government gives you something, ask where they got it from. So the idea is, what are the inalienable rights given by God? You have life and you have liberty. How's liberty protected? By contending for truth. How is that protected? By speech, by morality, by this idea of press this idea to contend so no one else oppresses you. And if the government is big enough to give you everything you want, it's big enough to take everything you have. You understand that? I like what this author says. He says, in private, if not in public, the bulk of 
those within our bipartisan political elite would find little to quarrel with in the annual message sent to Congress by President Roosevelt on January 11, 1944, wherein he asserted that the vision which had informed the American founding was an anachronism and then set out to redeem his promise to redefine our rights. This republic had its beginning and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable political rights, among them the rights of free speech, free press. And he goes through this whole idea. And what he's saying is, for that to exist, for, for, for Roosevelt to change that and list it out, it now gives the government the authority on who gets that. And what happens is it becomes this large, impregnable force, and individual rights and freedoms are done away with. Now, if you contend with that, what's the first thing you need to do? You need to be silenced. So you want to do internet laws. You want to do campaign laws. I mean, we can go on and on. Um, we're limited on time. I want to read this to you, and then I'll take questions. This was written by Thomas Jefferson, January 16, 1786. Religious freedom. He says, Well aware that the opinions and belief of men depend on not on their own will, but follow involuntarily the evidence proposed to their minds that Almighty God hath created the mind free and manifested his supreme will that free it shall remain by making it altogether insusceptible of restraint, that all attempts to influence it by temporal punishments or burdens or by civil incapacitations tend only to beget habits of hypocrisy and meanness and are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion." who being Lord both of body and mind, yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either, as was his almighty power to do, but to extend it by its influence on reason alone, that the impious presumption of legislators and rulers, civil as well as ecclesiastical, who being themselves but fallible and uninspired men, have assumed dominion over the faith of others, setting up their own opinions and modes of thinking as the only true and infallible, and as such, endeavoring to impose them on others, hath established and maintained false religions over the greatest part of the world and through all time um, to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinion, which he disbelieves and abhors, is sinful and tyrannical, that even the forcing him to support this or that teacher of his own religious persuasion is depriving him of the comfortable liberty of giving his contributions to particular pastor whose morals he would make his pattern and whose power he feels most persuasive to righteousness and is withdrawing from the ministry those temporary rewards which proceed from an uh, approbation of their personal conduct are an additional incitement to earnest, unremitting labors for the instruction of mankind that our civil rights have no dependence on our religious opinion any more than our opinions in physics or geometry that therefore the prescribing any citizen as unworthy the public confidence by laying upon him an incapacity of being called to offices of trust and emolument unless he professes or renounces this or that religious opinion is depriving him injuriously of those privileges and advantages to which in common with his fellow citizens he has a natural right that it tends. Am I allowed as a pastor to be in public office? But my religion affects the way I think. According to Jefferson, that isn't a hindrance. Um, here we go. That tends also to corrupt the principles of that religion. It's meant to encourage by bribing with a monopoly of worldly honors and moments those who will externally profess and conform to it. That though indeed these are criminal who do not, do not withstand such temptation, yet neither are those innocent who lay the bait in their way that the opinions of men are not the object of civil government nor under its jurisdiction, that to suffer the civil magistrate to intrude his powers into the field of opinion and to restrain the profession or propagation of principles on supposition of their ill tendency is a dangerous fallacy, which at once destroys all religious liberty, because he being, of course, judge of that tendency will make his opinions the rule of judgment and approve or condemn the sentiments of others only as they shall share with or differ from his own that it is time enough for the rightful purposes of civil government for its officers to interfere when principles break out into overt acts against peace and good order and finally that truth is great and will prevail if left to herself that she is the proper and sufficient antagonist to error 
and has nothing to fear from the conflict unless by human interposition, disarmed of her natural weapons, free arguments and debate, errors ceasing to be dangerous when it is permitted freely to contradict them. We, the General Assembly of Virginia, do enact that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or beliefs, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinions in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. And though we well know that this assembly elected by the people for the 35 ordinary purposes of legislation only have no power to restrain the acts succeeding assemblies constitute with powers equal to our own and that I'm almost finished and that therefore to declare this act to be irrevocable would be of no effect in law yet we are free to declare and to declare that the rights hereby asserted are of natural rights of mankind and that if any act shall be hereafter passed to repeal the present or to narrow its operation, such act will be an infringement of natural right. What they were saying is we're all driven by the same thing regardless of our religion. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now you're going to get sideways. Is there any religion that holds the corner on truth? Let me ask you this. Is there any denomination that holds the corner on truth? Is there any church that is perfect and holds the corner on truth? but we all exist and have the freedom to do so. Now, that being said, to what extent are we allowed to impose that on the rest of humanity? As as much as we agree in the civil body politic in debating these truths and coming to an understanding in a representative form of government. And the only way that that is operated is by representation. And that representation can only be civil when we keep the press free, the pulpits free, the speech free, and the right of redress of grievances against the government. We have to contend for truth. And just because you don't like something doesn't mean you get to suppress it and silence it. There are things I do not like that are said about me, but guess what? They have the freedom to do that. And you contend for it in public And you work for it. Are we allowed to oppress any other human being? No. We have no right to infringe on their life, their liberty, or their pursuit of happiness. And that has to be contended with from the pulpits and the press and the speech of the populace, we the people. And we have representatives to do it, and we do it in a civil manner. But if you don't like something, you don't shout them down and silence them and relegate them to a small circle because their speech offends you. Guess what? You're going to be offended, and I'm probably going to offend you. But what do you want to do about that? You want to silence me and put me in prison? Or do you want to debate and go back and forth and contend civilly for that truth? Are you going to shout me down and silence me and restrict what I can and can't say? Or are we going to debate with one another? And that is what we have in a representative form of government in a constitutional republic. That's why it's so important that we, the people, be educated in these concepts of how to protect that religious liberty and that freedom of speech and the freedom of the press. So I have here a pretty cool article, and I've only made four copies because it's quite a bit, but it's The Soft Despotism, Democracy's Drift, and it was written by Paul Rahe. It's an amazing article. It's 35 pages. I have four of them if you want to read it. It's, it's an epic insight into the decline of this freedom of speech in America. We're losing it. We're losing it rapidly. And that's the quickest way to silence an entire generation. All of our young people believe that this is how it's supposed to be. And when they saw that, they go, that's my life. How did that happen? So, 745, this is going to open up a lot of questions. A lot of people are going to be irritated. I get it. Don't shoot the messenger. But I, I still understand if you're frustrated, and I'll walk through it with you and do my best. I will say this. 
One of my, and, and you guys can be upset with me, and that's all right. One of my favorite people, there's two of them. I, I am not in any way, shape, or form condoning their lifestyle. All right, so don't write me off as a minister. But what I love about this is they're stepping into the body politic. They're abrasive, they're rude, they're bombastic. I don't like that. But I love the idea that they are so far out of the box contending for what the church should be contending for. And the church will never give them the time of day. Did you hear me? They are so far out of the box that they would be dismissed and kicked out of a church, but they are contending for what the church should be contending for. I don't even know one of the people's names, but I subscribe to their Instagram. It's called The Gay Who Strayed. Uh, She's a lesbian that is one of the most insightful, contending for religious liberty, contending and opposing fascism, an amazing insight. Totally opposite of me spiritually, but fights to protect my religious liberty. Another, Milo Yiannopoulos, have you ever heard of him? So many aspects of his life, completely vile. I listen to him speak sometime, I have to just go, I got to mute that. But when I hear him speak and what he's contending for and contending against the five pillars of Islam and this idea of Sharia law and the oppression of the freedom of mankind, I am blown away and I'm thinking, this is a man that wouldn't be invited into the church, but is doing more for the church than most Christians are. So that'll really help with the questions tonight and some of the comments. (laughs) I just thought I'd throw that out to really rile it up. I don't. I I I'm. I wouldn't have any reason to, but I do contend for truth. I do see what Romans one says. I preach that clearly. Well, ask some of the congregation. Do I? They say yes. Any, yes, question? My question about freedom of speech, uh, if you look for that in the gospel, like, where does that come in? Is it free will? Where's that right? Contending for the truth. You can find that in Timothy. You can find it in Peter. This idea of contending for the truth. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. You can go through a myriad of texts, but it's this idea of contending for truth, this idea of the word, this this coming to logic, logos, this... This concept of, you know, truth would be in Aramaic, amen, and, and that's what you're doing. You're, you are debating facts, you're debating logically, that's where we get the trivium, logic, rhetoric, and debate, and through the trivium, you come to this understanding, and, and there's, there's applicable ways, and this is one of the reasons why the original New Testament was written in Koine Greek, which was the language of the philosophical thinkers, so when they looked at it, they had this language that was so perfected for debate, and it, and it just took the, the world by surprise. So, yeah, it's, it's inundated in the scriptures in that re- respect. And we can sit down. I'll give you more to help you with that. So in the Greek, the word contended, is that very close to the English term contending? Yeah, one, one, yeah. yeah, like you see with the Apostle Paul and uh, um, Barnabas, one insisted and the other was determined and not a small contention arose. That, that's the exact same in the Greek. They contended, they fought. He just said, you're wrong. And he said, no, you're wrong. And they both split ways. And so, yeah, it's, it's there. And then he even says, I told Peter he was wrong to his face. Um, so, yeah, you, you go through all that. They're contending left and right. And by the way, one of the comments, thank you for what you said, but one of the comments is, yes, I do bring up the topic, but I do it to the best of my ability in a civil manner. You attack the issue, not the person. Anyone who knows me knows that my sister's a lesbian. And knows that I contended with her. We continue to contend. I tell her, one time we were out in the back of the parking lot after I'd given a sermon. And I said, do you think you and I would be having this conversation in the 1040 window, longitude and latitude, where 90% of the Muslim world exists? Or will I be pushing you off a building? 
And she couldn't deny that. I said, this is where we work through these issues. This is where we talk about it. And, and um, I went through an issue with my, um, my, my sister's uh, now spouse where she refused to come to um, my daughter's wedding because she, it was right after the election and she simply said, I don't want to be in a room full of bigots. And I said, well, wait a minute. Now, when we were invited to go to their wedding, they, we, you know, it was one of those things where I'll go anywhere, anytime to preach the gospel and to be a part of it and to have that inroad because all things are permissible, not all things are profitable. Their comment was, well, you wouldn't celebrate our day. I go, what? what? You guys said it was a civil thing. It was all about finances. Let's go back and look at the facts again. You were the ones who said you weren't coming to my daughter's wedding when you were given an invitation. You never gave us an invitation. And, and so as we did that, all of a sudden, this contending for truth and dealing in facts changed the whole scenario and the dynamic. So you do it in a civil manner. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to get upset. You just speak the truth in love. We're really good at speaking the truth, but we have to add the love part. Um, here. Yes. We just covered uh, Matthew 21. We're, yeah, where we turned over the money tables. Yeah. Uh, quick answer. Yeah. I would say Jesus himself said, I've not come to bring peace but a sword. To turn mother against daughter, father against son. Uh, Peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of Christ in the midst of the conflict. And we contend for truth, but we do it in a civil manner. And we love our enemies. We do good to those who spitefully use us, but we don't, we don't do that at the expense of truth. He, he, would, he would always state the truth, even when it was politically incorrect. And he would contend with the Pharisees who were political leaders, and he would contend with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. He did it continually. And the, those were the political leaders of the time. And they lived in that system. One last thing. Even yeah. with uh, abortion, I yeah. think people are going to say, well, you know, we, we, we of course pray about that. You know, I want you all to pray for God to, to stop that. Mm-hmm. You're not, we're not called to go to gays and all this stuff. I don't know. I just, it, it's a lot of Christians I they feel that way. Yeah. Know? Yeah, it's, it's like what Reagan used to say, uh, pray for a garden and pick up a hoe. You know, you, 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 there's work to be done, and I am all for prayer. Uh, it, and, you know, if you, it's like the old adage, if you've got three hours to chop down a tree, you spend two hours sharpening your axe, and then you spend an hour cutting the tree down. I think the same is true. If you are contending in a, in a civil body politic for truth, you want to spend a large amount of time praying, but you do not abstain from engaging in, in, in the, uh, the debate. Exactly. Back here. Yeah, the Johnson Amendment. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, the two comments or questions, one was, where are we with the Johnson Amendment? For those of you who don't know what the Johnson Amendment is, uh, Lyndon Johnson, when he, I think he was a congressman, um, a pastor spoke poorly about him, and then when he got into office, he established what's called the Johnson Amendment of the IRS statute, which says that uh, you will lose your tax-exempt status as a pastor um, if you endorse a political candidate, and they laid this out. In the history of the Johnson Amendment, there's never been uh, a violation of the Johnson Amendment where somebody has lost their tax-exempt status as a result of it, as, to, to what I know. And as a matter of fact, um, I'll endorse candidates from the pulpit, and I'll mail my sermons into the IRS, and I'll say, come get me, and they never have. Um, 
Trump recently has imposed kind of a stay on that, but the Johnson Amendment's still in effect, but it's never been prosecuted. No one, it, it, it's a, a law that has no teeth. But like you said, it still does paralyze the pulpits and restrict this freedom of speech to speak into these cultural mountains of influence. It does paralyze them to the point where pastors are afraid because we've been taught that there's a separation of church and state. And this, this mind is, I don't, I don't want to be too political because I'll lose my congregation. Well, it's true. I mean, when I started doing this at Skyline, I, 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 can, I think we have the largest church in the Conejo Valley. I would say the largest church in the Conejo Valley is the people that used to go here. It, it's, it, you're, I mean, you really are turning a corner. This is, this is not a pleasant thing because it, re, it, it requires engaging and engaging with a, a misconception that people will project on you. And typically when you do that in a church, the first thing everyone in the church says is go, ah, this pastor's too political. I'm out of here. Well, that's kind of how it is. But in the same regard, what I love about it is there are a myriad of really cool people in this church that politically disagree with me, but love the idea of contending. And, and I, I am so blessed by that in the civil body just to be able to hear that. Uh, no one gets shut down. I think it's healthy for a community. Um, time for maybe one more question. I thought it was going to be worse than this. You guys were nice to me tonight. Yeah, peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of a trial. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's a, that's a good one to leave us with. All right, we're going to do two more of these, and then we're going to call it quits. I'm going to go back to teaching out of a Bible study. So we have two more weeks, and then uh, I'm going to start a, a study in one of the, the books. I'm not sure which one yet. I imagine uh, in two weeks after we finish, some of you are going, well, I only came here for politics. And some, some people come back going, well, I only come here for the Word. So uh, I get it either way. It's coming and going. All right, God bless you guys. Thanks for coming out tonight.